You're listening to Docs Outside the Box, episode 40. Run that intro. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry, you're getting real life insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. Ah, I love that intro. Man, that intro always fires me up. Gets me always ready to do another episode of Docs Outside the Box. And yo, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Docs Outside the Box. I am the Doc Outside the Box, Dr. Nee Darko. And we're here to listen to ordinary docs do extraordinary things. And before I introduce my next guest, I want to read a five-star review from Apple Podcasts. This one is from Neuroman23, and the title is Good Listen. And he says, or she says, excellent podcast, can't believe this is available, Neuroman fist pump. Through this podcast, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for leaving me an Apple five-star review. Let's read another one. This one is Altunaman, and it's an interesting name, but this one says, not many podcasts like this, and it says, amazing podcast. Have you thought of having Sanjay Gupta? As a matter of fact, Altunaman, yes, I have considered having Sanjay Gupta on the show. I've reached out to him. And uh, we'll see if we can make this happen. If you know of any way that I can uh, make it happen a little bit quicker, um, help a brother out. Uh, But I have reached out to him. And then one last one is from Ock Therapy. Man, I got everybody within the (laughs) within the uh, the the hospital that are listening to this. But basically says more podcasts, please. Can you be more consistent with the show? This show is amazing. So a little bit of some, you know, critique in there. I appreciate that. And, and I am trying to be a little bit more consistent. Actually, I have been more consistent with the show. But nonetheless, I do appreciate the feedback. So to the three people who've left me uh, uh, feedback, Neuroman23, Altunaman, and Oc Therapy, thank you so much for leaving me Apple five-star review. And as always, as I say on my show, the best way to thank your favorite podcaster, the best way to show much love for your favorite podcast is to go on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. It doesn't take long at all. And as a matter of fact, I made it real easy for you. All you got to do is go to the episode that or the episode show notes on the website, which is www.docsotb. Click on an episode, particularly for this one, episode 40. And in there, in the show notes, you will see links for Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and click on that and you'll see it'll be very easy to leave a five-star review. So once again, much appreciated. So on to the next guest. So I think after you are going to hear this episode, you can tell that I really like it when my guests get really real with me. And as a matter of fact, after this interview, when I recorded it, it reminded me a lot of episode three, which if you all remember, and if you can easily go to the website and check a look, episode three was my interview with Dr. Dre, where he basically said, look, I love my patients, but at the same time, I love me too. He likes practicing. He likes being a, an OB doc, but at the same time, man, like when is he going to have time for himself? He wants to enjoy the things that, you know, we all like to enjoy. And I really, really highlighted how I think his honesty is the key to his success. And after talking with my next guest, and my next guest is Dr. Nisha Mehta, you'll see that she's finding success being very comfortable in her own skin. And I say that because after this conversation, I think you'll you'll hear that me and her, when we're talking, you'll see how just being very honest with yourself can be the winning formula that a lot of us, you know, actually search for in life. So Dr. Meta, she's a she's a practicing radiologist in Charlotte, North Carolina, and she's making a name for herself as a writer, speaker, blogger in the world of physician burnout, wellness, finances, 
lifestyle, whatever is related to physicians and physicians living their life right, she's writing about it. And don't take my word for it. She's written for Forbes magazine, Kevin MD, the Huffington Post. And first of all, before I even go on, like this is my second guest who's written for the Huffington Post. So damn, like I'm on a roll with docs who have written for the Huffington Post. And anybody out there who's listening right now who knows how I can get an in with the Huffington Post, little brother know, let me know, hit me up. But yeah, she has written for a lot of different uh, uh, media, uh, including the Huffington Post. So on this episode, we're going to talk about, obviously, her writing, her blogging, her speaking, um, but we're going to get real. We're going to talk about how her and her husband, who's also a physician too, they literally got real with each other. They had a come to Jesus meeting um, about what was important to them because they were living the two physician household. One person is a general surgeon, another one is a radiologist and just living that lifestyle of high and by and you take care of the kids. No, you take care of the kids and just doing that on a daily basis and it becomes a rat race. And let me, I mean, before I keep going on, please raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. I know what uh, Dr. Meadow was talking about. I could definitely relate to that. Um, but I think what's important is after chasing their tail for some time, you know, they, they, they reached a breaking point and I'm not going to spoil it for you, but the things that I want you all to pick up on this episode, and this is a good one is what was the breaking point for Dr. Meta and her husband in this daily rat race? Right. We're also going to learn how they both started making decisions that prioritize living in the now. And this is so key because doctors, any other type A personalities, we're so used to delayed gratification. I mean, you're going to get to a point where you're in your 50s and you're still delaying gratification. Is that how it's going to be? So this is a really good um, thing that I love that she talked about where she is talking about making decisions about living in the now. We're also going to talk about how she learned to just really speak and write freely about things that she couldn't talk about in the past. She's also going to lay some top tips for doctors out there who want to learn what it's like to write for news media outlets. And of course, obviously, with all of my guests, you're going to and you're going to hear how she answers hashtag I'm not just a doc. This is a good one. You're going to want to take notes. And without further ado, I present Dr. Nisha. Meta. Welcome back to another episode of Docs Outside the Box. I'm excited. I am highly anticipating this interview. I have Dr. Nisha Meta. Welcome to the show, girl. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, too. yeah. Oh, yeah. Physician, writer, speaker. You're all over the place. Um, you know, I've been <laughs> I've been really looking forward to having you on the show for a whole host of reasons. Um, obviously, for all the things that you're doing, besides being a physician, is really amazing. Um, but the reason why I really want to have you on the show is because you've been very honest talking about physician wellness, physician burnout, something that a lot of, you know, you don't really see a lot of right now. Well, obviously, physician burnout is really huge right now. But, you know, the things that you are talking about, the approach that you talk about, the candor in which you express yourself um, is very unique, and um, I just wanted you to have—I wanted to have you on the show so that you can talk to the guests and kind of talk about your story and how you got to your point and how you are such an amazing writer. And um, let's go ahead and start. Okay, let's do it. Thanks for that introduction. <laughs> oh, it's gonna get. Trust me, it's uh, you know, it's definitely well deserved. I think that you know, like I said before, there are not that many people who talk about this issue. For me, this issue is really big, particularly now that I have a child in my life. Um, it's just yeah, something it changes that, everything. oh my goodness, changes it changes, everything. changes a lot of things. But look, before I keep rambling on, let's just get to the nitty gritty. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, girl. Okay. So you've said a lot, but briefly, I'm a radiologist. I have subspecialty training in musculoskeletal and breast imaging. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now with my husband, who's actually also a physician and my two wonderful young boys, and actually speaking of them, I promised them a shout out, so this seems like a good Let's time do it. To Let's do it. it, girl. Let's do it. Let's <laughs> hey do it. Boys. Um, all right. So, yeah, recently over the past few years, like you've alluded to, I've kind of expanded my professional persona as a physician to start addressing issues in life and medicine. So I do that through writing, through speaking, through social media, and it's been a really exciting shift for me. It's allowed me to meet some interesting people like yourself and 
most importantly, has really just been a lot of fun and a great outlet to process my thoughts on life and medicine. So I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes and really enjoying it. Yeah, it's been really actually very interesting to kind of watch your arc. Um, you haven't even reached your arc yet, you know, based off of my own opinion. So it's amazing to kind of see you ascend and reach all of this acclaim, you know. But, you know, one thing I want to, before we get started and get too much in depth with you is I want to get to know who you are. I want people to know who you are. So tell us about Nisha Meta before medical school. Who were you? Like, let's let's take it back to like high school. Describe <laughs> okay. who you were. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. So just in terms of reasons for going into medicine and who I was and who, you know, what led me there, I think it's interesting that you phrase it that way, because I would like to think that I haven't changed so much at the core. Um, I think obviously the medical training process changes us a lot in terms of things like resilience and um, optimism and a lot of other things and hopefully makes us a lot wiser. But I really believe strongly that physicians need to stay who they are throughout their process. And so I've really tried to do that. You know, I have always loved spending time with my family and my friends. I absolutely adore travel. I love reading. And obviously, I like to write and I really love to talk. So I'm doing a lot of all of that right now. Um, but I grew up surrounded by medicine. My dad was and still is a full-time practicing cardiologist and, mm, you know, not okay. to feed into stereotypes or anything like that, but being a first generation South Asian family, most of our family friends at that time were also physicians. And right, so right. we lived in a suburb in Pittsburgh and I really, I couldn't go to the mall without running into my dad's patients asking me how my tennis match was or how our recent family trip was or congratulating me on some accomplishment that my dad told them about. And I couldn't start a new school year without one of my teachers telling me about how my dad had saved his life or, the, you know, the life of someone that they loved. And so I grew up seeing great examples of doctor-patient relationships and with such a sense of pride, I guess, in what my dad did that I was really drawn to that. And so I dabbled a little bit in exploring other things. At some point, I wanted to be a lawyer. But ultimately, I kept coming back to medicine. And I think, um, you know, fortunately, along that path, I was really, really lucky to go to institutions that harbored a sense that a good physician was really well-rounded in a lot more than just organic chemistry and physiology. And that, I think, was really what set aside my medical training experience from that of a lot of the physicians that I talk to these days. So so which which institution did you go to? So I started out um, my undergraduate career at Brown University. And so I was actually part of their eight-year medical program. It's called the PLME, which stands for literally the Program in Liberal Medical Education. So we were actively encouraged to take non-science classes, sort mm. of with a thought being that we really had to understand people and the world to be good physicians. So as an undergrad, I mean, I honestly, between my AP credits and the lack of requirements in terms of pre-med stuff at Brown, I really took one, maybe two science classes a semester. And other than that, I would take classes in, you know, the arts, econ, poli-sci, whatever really struck my fancy, I was able to explore it. And I ran a non-profit um, what was, yeah, so that was, actually, so you I mean, was, was outside the box before you became yeah, quote unquote outside I've the box. I've never really been a traditional, you know, person in medicine. Um, and I think like, honestly, I mean, I, I ran this nonprofit, which was related to health. It was actually, it dealt with, um, addressing negative pediatric health outcomes in families with so low socioeconomic status. So basically I would partner with the university and with like YMCA's and boys and girls clubs and things like that to address things outside of health, you know, th things in patients' lives that were affecting their health, but, you know, trying to alleviate some of those external factors to be able to allow them to be able to deal with their asthma or, you know, so like the obesity and yeah, things like that. So mm -hmm. I ran that program during medical school. And then actually, I actually ultimately ended up leaving Brown um, I finished my undergrad portion there, but I applied out to go to medical school at University of Pennsylvania because why, why, my family. Why, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. sorry. Oh, yeah. No, no. So my family was in Pittsburgh and I just really missed being closer to them. And so for the next four years of my life, I really decided I wanted to be in Pennsylvania. So I only applied to two medical schools. Essentially, I applied to Pitt and I applied to Penn. Um, and with the full knowledge that I had my backup spot at Brown, they were so great and so supportive of me leaving if I wanted to do it to be closer to family. And so they let me apply out to Pitt and Penn. And ultimately, at that time, I was actually still dating my 
now husband, but then boyfriend, um, who was also a part of that eight-year medical program at Brown. And so I wanted to be able to still see him from time to time, but I also wanted to be able to spend time with my family. And at the time, Southwest Airlines flew to both Pittsburgh and Providence for $23 each way. And Penn was one of the first schools to enact virtual curriculum. And so really, for my first like year of preclinicals, I would spend a week of every month in Pittsburgh with my parents and a week of every month in Providence with my husband. Um, and then I would come back and flyer like, miles. Yeah, yeah. A lot, lot of airtime during that time. But it was great. You know, I, I got to study there and spend time with the people who really meant a lot to me. And then I would come back to Penn and buckle down and study and you know, do my anatomy labs and all of that in preparation for exams, and then I would hit the road again. And so I wasn't a very conventional medical student at that time either. Um, and and Penn was really great about fostering our other interests, just like Brown was. So well, well, during let me oh. let's take a quick step back though. Your yeah. your your father's a cardiologist, right? Mm-hmm. Now, would you looking back now, would you say that he was pretty well rounded during that time when you were growing up watching him? You know. I think he tried really, really hard to be. I think medicine was different back then. You know, I mean, he was a cardiologist. We would have, we had this fax machine that I remember and EKGs would just be, you know, streaming through <laughs> at all times of the day. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, there was definitely a constant presence as a physician um, and as a doctor that was sort of overarching everything in our lives. Like, I don't think that that pager ever left his side. And I always love to tell this story um, about how, my dad actually, when we would bring home books from the library, bedtime was our time with him. And that was the time that he really like valued being able to sit down with us. And often he would get called in to go to the hospital. And at that time, you know, they didn't have hospitalists or other people that were managing their patients. And so if somebody, if one of his patients had an MI, he went in. Um, And if one of his patients came into the ER with chest pain, he went in. And so we we often were interrupted during bedtime. And so what he would do is he would actually tape record all of our bedtime stories <laughs> on this like little cute little tape. And we still have these tapes. They're precious. Um, but, you know, he would tape record all of the stories. And at the end, he would be like, good night. Say your prayers. I love you. I'll see you That's in the morning. Sweet. That's a sweet um, story. It was wonderful. Honestly, it's one of my favorite memories of um, him sort of trying to balance being both a father and a physician. And so I don't, you know. Balance, I think, is a relative thing. He, he had a very different career than I did. You know, he right. was married. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, you know, and I think that that's just a completely different situation from what I, you know, I'm married to a plastic surgeon who, who works full-time, obviously, and I work full-time. And so, you know, our demographics are very different. And so our careers have been very different consequently. But um, I do think he tried really hard. I mean, we, we took a lot of vacations. He really always believed and you know, we played a lot of sports together. We did a lot of things together. Every night after dinner, we'd play ping pong together and he'd talk to me about his day. So I, I mean, I didn't grow up feeling like I didn't have a father or anything like that, but I was just always very aware of his life as a physician. Did, did the concept of once you went to Brown University and being involved in that type of education where, like you said, it's a liberal approach to pre-med, so to speak, I guess, um, mm-hmm. did that kind of change your, your concept of what a physician is or the, the type of experience or what's expected from a physician? Because it seems as though like this is, I've never heard of this program. This is something that, um, I think is pretty unique. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out, well, I wonder if your mind was blown once you got to Brown university. <laughs> I mean, I think my mind was blown in many ways when I got to Brown university because you know, it is it's different. college and it's different and everything is different. But I think, you know, I, part of the reason why I chose that medical program is because I think when I went into college, I wasn't actually sure at that time that I wanted to be a physician. You know, my dad wasn't sure that he wanted me to be a physician. And this was sort of our compromise because it was a great undergraduate institution. And I was kind of like, I can do whatever I want to do coming out with a degree from here. So if I decide not to pursue medicine, I can do that. So I kind of went into, um, into Brown saying, let me be able to try everything, but I'll have this, you know, admission into medical student or school in my back pocket. And I, I'm fairly certain that that's what I want to do. But if I want to change my mind, 
um, I will be able to do that. And so I came into medical or came into undergrad with that approach of really wanting it to be able to, you know, be able to expand my horizons and do other things and really discover who I was and what I wanted to do. And is, um, it, is it Brown pretty much known as kind of the quote unquote most liberal of all the Ivy League schools for the most part? <laughs> yes. Yeah. In many ways. Um, I mean, we won't yeah, get into it on this ways. show. <laughs> you know, I heard, you know, so inquiring minds want to know. So. Right, right. Um, Brown is definitely unique. But, you know, that they, they use that philosophy for everybody, not just for this medical program. And I love that. I think that the idea of sending a kid to, to college, you know, and telling them to pursue this rigid set of these are your prerequisites and this is what you have to do and these are the classes you have to take every semester, I think that's really limiting. And, you know, obviously my husband and I both went to Brown, so we're we're huge fans of the process, but our kids are, you know, actively, when we ask them, somebody asks them, oh, where do you want to go to college? They know that there's only one answer <laughs> because we believe so strongly gotcha. in, that, um, in that philosophy. I think that it's really good for people to be able to get sort of a great education, you know, an Ivy League quality education, but still be able to explore what it is that makes them them um, without being, you know, without these expectations placed on them. So. Now, let's let's fast forward a little bit. So you, you you go to UPenn for med school, you graduate from med school, you decide mm-hmm. that you want to go into radiology, correct? Um, yes. You become a radiologist or you go through the radiology residency. So mm-hmm. let's start let's start from then. Right. Take us through your life as an attending radiologist. Well, actually, no, before that, you had a child. Was that in medical school or in residency or as an attending? So I got married at the end of my third year of medical school, and then I had my first child during my third year of residency. And things changed quickly thereafter, right? Yes. So Let's start from there. Okay. Um, So, you know, I think... I had always gone along this non-conventional path, like I was telling you about for both undergrad and med school. And I think when you get to residency, things become a lot more regimented, right? I mean, there's rotations and there's schedules and all of a sudden you really, whether you like it or not, do kind of have to fit inside that box a little bit better, right? Mm-hmm. You got to um, play the game. We got to play, gotta the, play game. the game. You got to play the game. And my husband was, you know, in a general surgery residency program. I was in a radiology residency. We were both working full time. And I think for a long time, we really started to conform to that. And then when we started talking about having a family, you know, nobody in my program that was a female had had a child so early in the process. And so that was a big discussion that we had to have. And ultimately, I think I just decided, you know, we'd been married for five years and I was ready to have a kid. And I'd always told myself that I wasn't going to let that stop me. But by the same token, when we had my son, obviously it was done within the confines of residency. And so we had to make a lot of arrangements. And I think that sort of carried on into our first few years of being parents. So my husband then matched for fellowship at Duke and I followed him there. Um, I took a, I took a fellowship at university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And then I stayed on as an attending while he finished his three year fellowship there. And so during that time, we really, we really were just treading water. Honestly, I think we were enjoying ourselves and enjoying our kids, but, but by the same token, we really were doing it in the confines of what was expected of us and, and what was necessary in the form of that sort of residency. So give us an example. I mean, first of all, the thing that I find really fascinating about what you said maybe about two minutes ago was like you in, in order to have a child, you have to think about, first of all, that you're a female and that nobody else has had a child that early. Like, that's crazy. You know, right. that, that that type of pressure has to be put on you. I find that to be fascinating and crazy at the same time. Yeah, um, I didn't want to I, mean, I didn't want to cut you off, but it was just something that just stuck in my mind. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's such an awkward decision, you know, because it's it's funny the way that we have things set up. You can't really ask those sorts of questions. Like I remember when I was applying for residency and they found out that I was married. I, one of the programs that I was applying to was a smaller program and they that you know, it was a female program director and she said to me very frankly, you know, asked me a completely illegal question and said, "When are you going to have children because we're such a small program?" we can't really accommodate time off for maternity leave and, you know, all the things that go along with having kids. And I sort of, and you you know, know, that gets asked a lot because she just, I'm sure she just blurted out what I've been thinking about it. So I'm sure she's asked a bunch of women that question. Right. And you know, know, the, 
what what was I supposed to say in that situation, right? right? And You're so of course at, at that time I was just like, you know, I just got married. I'm not even thinking about kids right now. I said all the right things. And then after I left that interview, I crossed them off my list and didn't rank them, right? <laughs> because I was like, you know, it, it's frustrating because those are all practical things and they're all things that I understand programs have to think about. But I also was kind of like, well, you're a female program director who's clearly, you know, who had kids and had been through this process. And I kind of feel like at this point we have 50% of medical students who are females and are, who are going through this process. And we just kind of re we go through these same struggles. Now, you know, as social media brings out these stories, we've all had to deal with these same sorts of questions and these same sorts of issues. And instead of making it easier for ourselves, it's almost as though like if somebody else has done it, then the next person is expected to kind of go through it. And it's no. not acceptable to talk about, well, why is this not okay? Or what are we going to change? Um, because you don't want to be the person who's breaking that mold necessarily. And you don't necessarily want to be the person who comes off as the troublemaker or not get a residency spot because you do speak up about that or not get an attending spot because you do speak up about those things. And so you kind of go with that mold. But in the meantime, you do all these crazy things in terms of like, you know, I remember when I was looking for a place to pump during residency after I had my first kid, you know, nobody else had been pumping. So there wasn't really a great place in most of the places where I was rotating to be able to pump. And so I would go into a hospital supply closet where there happened oh. to be an electrical outlet and pump. And, you know, I mean, things like that, where it's just like these things Not are even a silly. Place to sit, you know, yeah. even no privacy. Oh, right. Yeah. And there are things that have solutions. They're easy solutions. But we just are so afraid to challenge the status quo that we don't necessarily do it. Right. And so um, I think that those are things that have come up repeatedly for me now as I talk to women in medicine about what their experiences were trying to get that system to sort of accommodate those years of our lives. Um, and it's it's scary how people are afraid to tell you know, people when they're pregnant and they're afraid to tell, for me, I was a radiology resident. And so obviously I get radiation exposure, especially on my interventional radiology rotations and things like that. And so when I found out that I was pregnant, I couldn't hide it for 12 weeks or however many weeks most people hide it for, you know, I had to immediately go to my program director and say, Hey, I'm pregnant before I even knew if it was a viable pregnancy or not, because mm -hmm. I didn't want to have to be in front of the fluoro machine during that time where, you know, the fetus is really radiosensitive. So there were all these things where I feel like, you know, we, we have to learn to navigate those things, but we weren't, ne we don't necessarily always have the mentorship to be able to ask those questions and ask those things in a and way. That's a, that's a very vulnerable time in your life too, because, or even just for anybody, particularly women is you've gone through all of these years of training you've gotten to the residency program that you want, you know, but technically like you have to play the game in order mm -hmm. to finish, right? If you open your mouth, then you're looked at as a pariah or as a troublemaker, right? right. And if you keep your mouth shut, then what happens to the next person who comes behind you? Right. You know, it's just, you're, you're, it's, it's a catch 22. It's a total catch 22. And I think that there's always people that are sort of doubting your path along that line. And then they make you doubt your own path as well. You know, mm -hmm. I remember when I was studying for boards, my son was 11 months or, you know, almost about to be one. And I was still nursing. And, you know, we had limited hours for access to childcare. And in radiology residency, you actually get, well, the system has changed because the boards have changed. But while I was in it, you got a few months before boards came around where you full-time just studied for boards. You were off clinical rotations and you just studied for boards during those months. And so everybody else in my class was at the library 24-7 studying for boards. And for me, you know, I had a kid that I needed to get back to and I could only afford so much childcare. And so when those hours were up, I needed to get home. And my husband was a general surgery resident, so he wasn't able to help out in that setting very much. And so you know, I would leave the library and everybody would be like, you're done for the day? And I was like, I don't, I don't have a choice. You know? <laughs> I'm going to be out. I, I'm going to go home. <laughs> and everybody was like, you're going to fail the boards. This is going to be horrible. And, you know, nobody else has taken the boards with it having this sort of situation and just really, you know, placing those sorts of doubts in my mind. And I was kind of like, well, I have this kid and I decided to have him. So, you know, I've made everything else in my work, in my life work up until this point. And if this is meant to be, it'll work out. And in a worst case scenario, I'll sit for the boards again next year. But, you know, I don't have a choice in this matter. Did but you I pass? Think that, yeah, I passed. There you <laughs> I go. Passed. So you get to throw, you get to rub it in their face. Boom. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> I don't want to rub it in anyone's face, but I use that as an example now to, you know, other women who are going through that right now and saying, can I have a child during residency? Can I? And my answer is yes, you can. Like you have gone through so much and you have already jumped through so many hurdles to get to the point where you're at that to think that you can't do something just because it hasn't been done before is just not acceptable, right? You mm. have to have faith in who you are and what your abilities are and know that you're going to you're going to be just fine and you have to have that faith. And I think that that, um, for me, I've always fortunately been relatively confident in that regard, but it, you know, those sorts of things shake you when nobody else has done it and people are telling you, Oh, you know, but what happens if you don't pass? What? And I was like, that's not what I need to hear. I need to hear you're going to pass. It's going to be okay. You know? Um, but you don't necessarily get that support because people just aren't used to those, those things. So so how did life change, or at least your mentality change, once you had your firstborn, um, and not just for you, but also for your husband? Because I think you're very open about that, and I want to talk yeah. more about, you know, the change in, um, you know, work style, or what became very important to you guys during that, that change. Let's talk about that. Right. So I think, you know, our first year when we had my son, my first son, was really just about treading water, and that you know, we both kind of got by and my husband actually as a chief in general surgery had a little bit more flexibility than he generally had. So he got an okay amount of time with that child. But when my second son was born, um, during res or during fellowship and I, you know, when we got, we, when we moved to North Carolina, I kind of got into a, into a little bit of a mode and my, my older son was, or my older son at that time was old enough that he'd gotten past the infancy stage. And he and I kind of came to an understanding amongst, you know, we were just sort of this mother son team that got by through everything together. But when the second child came around, that sort of complicated things a lot more because now all of a sudden I just had more on my plate and I had all the demands of a newborn and I was working full time, you know, as an academic radiologist and I had grant funding from Siemens. I, you know, I was trying to balance all of these things. And in the meantime, my husband was in a very rigorous training program at Duke doing like a very heavy reconstructive fellowship. And so he was just always gone. You know, he, he never really saw the kids during that time. And for me, my daily routine was I would wake up in the morning, I would get ready. Then I'd wake up the boys. I would get them ready, get them to daycare by seven fifteen, seven thirty, make it to work by eight. I would you know, work as hard as I possibly could during that work day so that I could get out in time to get out at 545 so I could make it to the university daycare by six, pick them up, bring them home, you know, get them fed, get them changed, um, play with them a little bit, hopefully, then shower them and get them to bed. And then after that, my husband would come home most days. And, you know, I would be opening up my email and looking at requests for a letter of recommendation from a medical student or looking at, you know, statistics from my research mm. or whatever. I mean, it was just such a rat race. Mm. It was almost like Groundhog yeah. Day over and right. over again. I just felt like I was going through the same routine. And in that time period, I don't think I necessarily even realized how crazy our lives were because I was just so focused on survival. Um, mm. And I think my husband was so focused on training that he didn't really um, have a lot of time to think about that either. And so for a long time, we went through that process um, and as my younger son got a little bit older and hit that stranger anxiety phase, it was funny. Because, I mean, it was funny in a sad way, but he really, he had stranger anxiety with my husband. With your husband, okay. Wow. <laughs> Which is horrible, right? But I mean, he would literally, if there were times where my husband would come home before eight o'clock and actually be able to hold him before bedtime, he would cry because he didn't really have a good sense of who my husband was really, you know. Um, Man, that's real sobering right there. Yeah. And it was really, you know, I think at that point we really started to say, what are we doing? You know, and it was right at the time where my husband was approaching, you know, he was in his chief year of his fellowship and we were thinking about jobs going forward and what we wanted. And we really had to take a few steps back and say, okay, you know, we're doing this right now. And we always pictured us both being in academics and having these very, you know, industrious careers. And we still want that, but we need to figure out how to do that in a way that works within the confines of our life and who we want to be as not only as physicians, but as people outside of medicine, uh, as parents. And, you know, what are our other goals? Are we just going to keep going through this sort of groundhog day way mentality of just survival, or are we going to make some changes? Um, and I think at that point, you know, 
is this like a conversation at the dinner table? Is this like, like, <laughs> These like draw a picture for us. At like two or three o'clock in the morning after my husband <laughs> would get home and I had a really hard day. And, you know, I'd you're, be just, like, you're just looking up at the ceiling and he's knocked out or are you guys both talking at the same time? Well, two, three in the morning? You know, this A, B and C. <laughs> Sometimes he would fall asleep while, while I was having that conversation with him. Sometimes he would come home and want to have a conversation about a really hard day that he had at work. And I'd be like, I just need to get these dishes done and I need to get two hours of sleep got time before that, Sean like, wakes up and I have to nurse him. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it, it was, we varied between who was the exhausted one and who couldn't handle, you know, whatever at any given moment. But we really got to this point where we realized that it was just crazy what we were doing to ourselves and what, you know, we weren't really on that pathway to building the life that we wanted in the same way that we thought that we would. And so sometimes it was in the form of this is really sad that this happened, you know, oh, so-and-so took his first steps today and you didn't see it. Or, you know, sometimes it was in the context of, well, I really want to go on vacation here, but now that we haven't submitted our request six months in advance, we can't do that vacation. Or, you know, I think all of those sorts of life things would bring up these conversations about, well, what exactly are we doing and, and how long is this sustainable? And so when we started looking at jobs, I think we laid out clear priorities for both of us. And I think that that was a big change for my husband, especially who had always been so career oriented to saying, I think it's really sad that my second son doesn't know me as well as my first son does, you know, and that's really a direct result of me not being around. And I don't want that anymore. I don't want to join a practice where I have to then do so much career building and so much whatever that I miss the next five years of their life. So it was, well, how do we start living our lives now? Um, and I think that that was a question that obviously we didn't come to any answers overnight on. Those were complicated discussions and we went back and forth. And, you know, to some degree, we're still constantly evaluating on a daily basis whether or not we're doing exactly what we want to be doing. And I think that that's good. But I think it took a lot for us to get to that point where we, where we had to start thinking about those things. Um, can, you, can you give us an example? Like, Give us like a couple of examples of some concrete decisions that you guys had to make to say that, you know what, we want our life back. We will, you know, we we're happy being physicians, but at the same time, we're not going to be hostage to it. Right. Right. So can you give, give us some idea or some things that she did concretely? Yeah. So, um, you know, my husband was looking at jobs during his third year fellowship and he was really excited about this one job back up in the Northeast that was close to our family. And, you know, it was a really great job with a really great guy, um, that he was going to be joining, but he would have had to take call at multiple different hospitals, um, at level one trauma centers. And we knew that for the first few years while he was building, he would be really busy. And I sort of, you know, I found the job that I really would have loved there. And it was close to my family. And I said, you know what, at least I'll have some support in terms of family. So we had made the decision to take that job when sort of last minute out of the blue, the job that he actually ended up taking came up. And these guys called him and they were like, you know, he had known them from a conference that he'd been at and they called him and they said, Hey, like, we know this is really last minute, but if you haven't signed a contract yet, why don't you, um, consider taking a job with us? We guarantee that you'll love it. And he said, you know, no, we've already made this decision to take these jobs. We're like very close to signing our contracts. We've already looked at schools for the kids. We're, we're pretty much going. And they were like, well, it's two hours away from Chapel Hill. You literally just need to get in your car, drive down, check us out. We guarantee you'll love it. Um, and just just come down and check it out. And so he drove down and it was a great job, you know, in every way, shape or form. It was he got to do what he wanted professionally. It was with a great group of people. There were a lot of opportunities for him to grow. But it also had a really great work life balance. Right. He I mean, essentially, it meant that he would go in at eight o'clock. He'd be done at five o'clock his after hours responsibilities would be minimal. And so he came home after that interview and they offered Sounds him like a, a job. Winner to me. Yeah. So they offered him a job on the spot, but you know, I, I then didn't have a job lined up in Charlotte. So he came home and he said, it's your decision. You know, I could take this job, um, where clearly I'll be home all the time and we can really just sort of start our lives right now, but we'll be further away from family and you'll have to find another job. And, you know, you have to be okay with the fact that like we'd move there and I'd start this job and you wouldn't know what you were doing just yet. And I thought about it for a while. And ultimately I said, you know, I'm going to lose any ability to ever complain to you about your lifestyle. If I don't 
let you take this job. So I was like, we're going to take this job and I'll figure out what it is that I'm going to do. And so that's how we ended up here in Charlotte. Um, and he ended up with this great job. And then I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And that, that process was really, I think for me, a big turning point in terms of when I started to talk about all these things in medicine and when I started to write and when I started to speak, um, because I ended up having about six months off where I was looking for sort of the perfect job and Charlotte doesn't have an academic medical center. So there wasn't an opportunity for me to stay in academics. And so I started looking at all these private practice radiology jobs and they all had nighttime responsibilities, weekend responsibilities, holidays, this, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And for the first time in our lives, I didn't have to think about finances because my husband was finally earning more than a resident salary. Mm -hmm. And I had a little bit of financial freedom to say, well, this is what I want to do and this is what I don't want to do. And I had the time to be able to actually think about that and say, well, what is it that I really want? And if this is a job that I'm going to be taking, that I'm going to be locked into because my husband you know, likes his job and I'm going to have to worry about a non-compete, I really have to make the right decision about what job it is that I want to take so that I don't get non-competed out if I don't like the job that I end up taking. And so I looked at private practice jobs. I looked at teleradiology jobs because, you know, that's an option in radiology as well. Um, and ultimately, I was just having a really hard time because everybody wanted me to work these hours that I really just didn't want to work at that stage. And I really wanted to be able to refocus on the kids. And the VA job came along at the last minute. And so I actually took a job with the VA and I work eight to four 30. I work no nights, no holidays, no weekends, anything check, of that sort. Check. check, check. Yes. So it's <laughs> wonderful because I get to do what I love professionally during the day. And then once I walk off federal property, I can't check my federal email. I don't have any sort of, you know, I don't have no connection during my time outside of work with my time at work. And that has just been such a change in mindset for us. Um, it's just been, I mean, it's been really great. And with my husband's job being chill, you know, both of us are home by five thirty six, and we get the rest of the evening with the kids and to ourselves. And I think that those are, those are things that really made us start thinking about, you know, when we hear about all these other physicians who are unhappy with their lives in medicine or who are voicing complaints it just makes us feel so fortunate that, you know, we did have kind of the really awful time before that where we had no semblance of work-life balance to really throw things into perspective and say, hey, like, we need to do something to change this. So, um, hmm. so I, I really appreciate you sharing that because that's almost similar to me and my wife's experience, actually. Right. So really? I finished I finished fellowship and we were trying to figure out how can we get back to the New York, New Jersey area and the let's just say the practice environment is very different in the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut compared to Midwest or yes, absolutely. Where, I did, where I did a majority of my training, which was Georgia and Florida. And um, having, t similar to you, we had a lot of student loan debt. You know, the question is, well, where could we really make a big dent in this, um, you know, in this debt? And also at the same time, we wanted our lives back. You know, like yes. we were just tired of every four or five years just always thinking for every four or five years, we're going to move here, we're going to go here, we're going to go there. Right. It just became to the point where... And your where wife is OBGYN too, right? Yeah, so it's not like yeah. her hours are any better than your hours. Absolutely. And in many respects, actually, I think her hours are worse than mine. Yes. You know, and uh, um, so we ended up taking jobs that um, we definitely knew that the lifestyle um, was going to be a priority more so than just always constantly being at work. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I hope the audience appreciates that also. Now, I just want to pivot uh, real quick. How did you figure out or how did you fall into writing um, where, um, you know, you're writing for blogs and now you're writing for like major news outlets like Huffington Post and Forbes? How did how did you step into that? You know, it's interesting. It kind of just happened by chance. So like I had talked about earlier, I had that time off between my jobs um, and during that time, I was obviously thinking about all this, well, what do I really need and, and processing just sort of where my life in medicine was and what I wanted it to become. And so I'd always loved to write and I just started writing again. Um, and on a whim, I decided to submit one of those to Kevin MD and got a great response to that article and started writing a little bit more, started getting 
Doctor's more, website is amazing. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it's just such a good insight into what oh, being yeah. a physician today is like. And I think it's important that those voices get out there because I think we have such a public relations problem as physicians. And to have people come out there and say, well, this is why it is, or this really isn't our fault. Don't blame us for this. And, and give people an outlet to be able to say those things and maybe hopefully put some some dent into that PR problem. Um, I think that that's awesome. And so I've been really fortunate to be able to publish with Kevin MD a few times. And, you know, after I started doing that, people started contacting me to write for them. So, you know, one thing led to another. <laughs> yeah, and now you're blowing up. Well, I don't know about blowing up, but, you know, one thing led to another. Eventually, people started asking me to come speak at their institutions or to give them career advice. So things have really just followed their own path, and I've been going with it. Um, so that's, it's been a really exciting pathway, and in some ways, it's just created itself by me just following my passion. And so I've kind of kept that as the, the guiding principle behind what I do and what I don't do. And um, it's really allowed me to get into some really interesting venues and just meet really great people who have then introduced me to new opportunities and it's it just kind of spiraling. So it is exciting to see where it's going because it's, it's really just taking on a life of its own. So now I've, I've gone through your reading, um, you know, obviously in order to do this show, I got to do a lot of stalking <laughs> of, of my <laughs> guests and stuff. So you, 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 you obviously, you do a lot of writing on physician wellness, physician burnout, um, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, physician finances, you know, do you feel like you find more inspiration from talking about like your own experience and kind of writing about that? Like, how do you and why do you decide to use that as a subject as opposed to, you know, let's just say anything else? I think really what I view myself as unique in, like you said, is I'm I'm in a position now for the first time to really talk about things that I might have been afraid to talk about earlier in my career or when I was in academics and worried about climbing, you know, a certain ladder or um, getting a certain promotion and things like that. And so I think one of the things that I can add really has to do with me coming out there and saying, well, this is what my life in medicine means. And this is how I've found a way to be happy with my life in medicine. And I think it's really sad to me that, you know, at the heart of what we do as physicians, it's really honestly amazing, right? We get this opportunity to be part of people's lives in sort of one of the most personal ways possible and really make a difference in people's lives. And I think that that is really what doctoring is about to most of us. It's a calling. And it's sad to me that, you know, with the rise of physician burnout and the changing healthcare landscape and all of these other things that are happening, we're starting to lose sight of that because of just all the other pressures around us. And so, Part of my goal in terms of my writing is really to say, well, yes, these things are horrible. And but, you know, what we have is worth saving and what we do is worth protecting. And so what I really like to do is get out there and use my stories and my experiences as a way to a shed light on some of the problems that are out there. But B also say, well, what can we do to change it on a personal level, on an institutional level? where can we make a difference in this? Because we have to, right? The, the the direction that we're headed in right now, I mean, if you look at the fact and you look at these statistics in terms of how many people are burned out and where um, where some of this legislation is going and where, where things are changing, it's kind of like watching, you know, a wrecking ball go to <laughs> this thing that at the heart is really this very pure, amazing thing. Right. But there's still there's there's still people who are like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you talking about this? I think there's a lot of physicians who are out there who think that this is overblown um, physician burnout, which leads me to my next question. Like, you know, you're very open and honest and and I Mm -hmm. love it. And I'm sure the people who ask you to come and talk and people who read your articles love it. But do you ever have that feeling from colleagues or anybody else who says that, you know, you're weak because you're talking about that? That's you. Your writing doesn't represent me. Do you ever get something like that at all? I do. And I have, you know, I think fortunately, I'm not really one of those people who puts a lot of thought into what other people think about what I do. I mean, I think ultimately, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Who cares what they say? <laughs> well, Zero I, mean, I, think we, I, I care what my friends think and what my family thinks. And I, you know, there's people that are core, like close in my inner circle where I obviously respect their opinions and respect what they think. But I also think, you know, if you don't like it, move on. 
you know, look at what it's you not for everyone. About, and that's it's fine. not for everyone. It's not for everyone. And there are things right. that my friends do and my family do that I'm not totally 100 percent into, but it doesn't devalue my relationship with them in any way. It's just not something that, you know, I tend to focus on when I'm with them. And so from that perspective, I try really hard not to be bothered when people do say things like that to me. But I do think also I use it as a way also to educate certain people about some of the issues, because I think, you know, it's funny when certain people say things along the lines of, well, why, why do physicians even, why is this such a big deal, right? Like you have great jobs, you get paid really well, everything is great and you, you still find things to complain about. And I try to use that as a way to educate people on exactly a, what the physician training process is and how some life in subspe- some specialties is very different than life in other specialties. And so the pressures that some people may face are not the same as pressures that other people may face. And I, I try to use that as that kind of an outlet to try to educate people who don't necessarily understand these issues as well and say, well, here's why this is an issue. And Sometimes it's funny, even with my own husband, I'll have these some of these discussions about some of these articles, and he'll be like, well, is this really that much of a threat? Like, why are, why are you making such a big deal out of this? And I'll say, I don't think you understand, because it doesn't affect you in your field. Mm-hmm. You know, my husband right. is in, obviously, a very niche field in terms of, he has a significant cash-based population, you know, and then also does a lot of, like, cancer reconstruction, which in general is is pretty protected from a lot of these cuts that other things are not cut from. And so I don't think he faces the same pressures. And I said, well, would you feel any differently if you were a primary care physician who was working, you know, who had, who was told that they had to see 40 patients at 15 minute increments, who had somebody who was actually not a physician that was assigned to a task of knocking on your door and telling you that your 15 minutes up with, was up with that patient and then you had to move on to the next place. And then after you were done with all of that, you had to come home and chart for three hours. I think you would feel very differently about your life. And not medicine. get paid for it, too. And right. Not and get not paid. get paid yeah. nearly as well for it. And so I think a lot of what we do when we when we diminish burnout or when we belittle it to some degree is we really fail to acknowledge what some of our colleagues are going through and what, as a whole, the medical profession is is leaning towards. And, you know, I think that there are other industries that prey upon that, um, you know, perceived weakness in our ability to have time to focus on those sorts of issues and change those sorts of issues. And finances. I think that, yes. Finances. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Right. Like that, you know, let me handle your example. money since you don't have time to handle your right. own money. And, and in the, the meantime, way, I'm me ripping take, you off at the yes, same time. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that those are things. Don't get me started, Dr. Meta. <laughs> oh, goodness. I, yeah, I won't get started because we'll have another three hours on this podcast. But I think that there are you know, there are so many things like that where there are entire, you know, and the same thing for medical students, right? We have all these test prep companies and things, just so many people that are playing on people's insecurities at certain points because we don't have those strong mentorship programs in place, you know, and I think that's why it's great that there are these finance blogs that are going out there and saying, you know what, you actually, this is not something that you want to get involved in. And, that is something that I never got during training. I don't know if you ever got it during training, but I feel no. like never got exposure to that, right? And those are things that look. Play I, I bought into my. I bought my. <laughs> I bought my life insurance, disability insurance from someone in a club. I'm serious. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I'm, I'm going to link to that to that podcast in my show notes. But seriously, like I met this guy in a club in Miami. And, you know, the experience went like how you would expect if you bought your insurance from someone in a club. You know what I'm saying? It was just did not yes. turn out to be a good experience. And it was this typical like, yeah, let me handle it for you. Come on. This is this. This is this. And it, it just was a bad situation. So but l- l- let me ask you specifically about writing, because, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it's really fascinating, this whole concept of just writing and and um being a speaker, you know, because there's people on this show who are looking to pivot, you know, they want to be outside the box, but at the same time, they want to be able to think outside the box, but be able to kind of speak on certain things in medicine or speak on things that are going on with physicians. So for the docs who are out there right now who are listening and they want to get some tips from you, what are some tips that they can get from you to, you know, get on the same you know, just to start writing for news outlets or blogs, things like that. What are some some ideas that you can give to them? I think that there are obviously there's a lot 
of things that go into actually establishing a real career as a writer and a speaker. Um, and a lot of those are very practical things in terms of deciding how much time you're going to devote to it and how you're going to get your word out and how you're going to advertise and, you know, how you're going to build a presence that allows people to find out what you are and what you're doing. And I think that, you know, I could probably give a lot of talks on that. And we, we actually, um, I don't know if you know this, but I have this, I have a Facebook group actually that I lead that I started a long time ago about physicians who are doing things outside of medicine. Um, either as passion projects or as a way to supplement. You can push it on the show. No, no, I have no need to push it. It's growing on its own, which I think is so um, telling of where we are in medicine, right? There's so many people who are looking to do other things for one reason or the other, whether it's just for their own happiness or whether it's because they need um, supplemental income to tackle those loans or whatever it is. Um, And I think that... So it's physician side gigs is what you're talking about. Physician side gigs, yes. It's Mm -hmm. a Facebook group. where we have about, I think we're, we're getting close to about 7,000 physicians right now on there that are all giving each other advice and sharing their expertise in, in terms of how to get onto the, um, get into these fields. And so, and they're all listening to docs outside the box too, right? Right. No, I mean, we'll definitely, <laughs> we'll definitely encourage them to do so. Um, I'll just mess with you. No, no. I mean, I think that that's, that's, that's what the group is all about is physicians supporting physicians and, and trying to, you know, let each other know that there are other options and, and give each other venues to be able to do that because there are, you know, all these other fields in business and other places, people are so well networked. And I think that that's where, you know, their strengths lie in terms of being able to accomplish things. And I think that's a real starting point problem for physicians in terms of inertia, because they don't have those resources readily available to them, because it's not something we were trained to do in medical school. So um, I think that joining those sorts of communities and, and making connections that with people who are interested in doing things that are similar to what you want to do, or who are already doing things that are similar to what you want to do is really important to figure out where you want to start. But I think when people ask me, you know, well, what should I write about and how should I write about it and how am I going to get noticed and what, what do you think is the best topic so that, you know, I'll be able to be published? And my advice for that is really, honestly, if you talk about something that you are passionate about, you will find your people. Um, and what I see people making mistakes about is really just trying to write towards things that they think are going to be perceived as popular or write things in a way that they're they're not actually that passionate about, and that yeah, shows. You are so right. You can see through it. I'm. You're right. You can see right through it. Yeah. So I mean, I think like people people get out there and they say, "Well, I want to write about this because I know it's a great idea and I know it's popular right now," and then they write these things, and because they're not pouring their experiences into it and they're not making it personal, and you can tell that they're not passionate about it. Those are the people who ultimately, I think, end up petering out along that pathway because they don't get the the response that they want. But I think when you go out there and you, you put yourself out there and you actually talk about things that matter to people and people start saying, hey, I had that happen to me too. And can you tell me more about that? Because I'm having that same problem right now. And how did you deal with that? That's really how I've grown organically is just by by putting myself out there and, and having people reach out to me, which has been really nice. I haven't had to market. I haven't had to you know, I've never put a single penny into Facebook advertising or any of these other things that people um, consider doing because I really think... Wait, wait. So these 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 outlets have been finding you organically? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I really have not wow. seeked out anything to any... I mean, occasionally I'll make a pitch to it and, you know, like for Forbes, when I got the Forbes article, I went ahead and submitted that because I thought that was something that, you know, had a population that would respond to, but really I just kind of put my work out there and allow people to find me. So for example, my medical student column, I was putting things out and somebody from theme medical publishers just reached out to me and said, Hey, you're writing about a lot of things that I think our medical students would be really interested in. Like, would you be interested in writing for us? I said, absolutely. You know, but those are, those are things that just kind of came up because I was doing what I, what I loved. And I think that that's, Mm. um, I love that point. Yeah, I think whatever your passion project is, whether it's writing, speaking, whether it's, you know, anything that you're looking to do outside of medicine, if you're passionate about it, you know, we're all people who have a lot of skill sets and, and you know, we're people who have proven that we can work hard and, and get to where we want to be. It's just really a matter of making that commitment and deciding to go forward with it. Um, can, can, you, can you do financially okay 
with a career, obviously as a physician, but as a career writing, speaking, like, how, like, what's your thoughts on it? I'm not getting into your pockets, you know, but I just want right. to know, like, how, how lucrative can this get? I think it can get really lucrative. I mean, it, it's really just a, it, I think if you want it to be as lucrative as it can be, you have to make a commitment to doing it probably more than what I do it as, you know, for me, it's really a passion project and I love clinical medicine and I love what I do on a full-time basis. So I don't see myself leaving that. So most of my writing and speaking happens on my terms. Um, and I think if you're going to make it into a career, then you sort of have to, you have to be a little bit more willing to bend and do things on other people's terms and travel when they want you to travel and not say, Oh, you know, actually that's my kids play or my kids, you know, soccer game and I can't go during that time, which, you know, I do do stuff like that right now because I don't necessarily, um, do it for the money. I do it more because of my passion. But I think that if you are going to do it and do it seriously, there is the ability to replace your income. You know, once you become a speaker, there are speakers out there that are making, you know, $10,000, $15,000 a talk who are physicians. Um, wow. And yeah. I think that that, you know, obviously what your range is, you know, you look at people like Dog MD and, you know, other people who are doing really, really well, they're clearly able to market that product, um, very well. And I think you can do that if that's, if that's what you want to do, there's definitely options. Writing is a little bit harder. I think you have to take, you know, speaking is more lucrative than writing. Um, in my experience, unless you write obviously a blockbuster book or, um, or if you are able to get a job as like a medical writer and that's your full-time gig, um, and you're working for a major news outlet or something like that. Obviously there's paths everywhere where you can supplement your clinical income, but it just, it depends on how seriously you want to take it, how much money it's really going to bring in, I think. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Well, we're, we're at the end of our interview, but we got some quick, fast questions that I want to ask you. You game, you ready to do this? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So it's, don't think too hard about it. Just tell, tell us the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask these questions. So the first one is, what's one thing you want listeners to get from this podcast? I guess I think that really people should do what makes them happy in medicine. <laughs> and I think um, I've always sort of approached my life in medicine that way. And I think that that's something that we really need to keep in mind is that we, we determine what we get out of our careers. And so um, we should really do what makes us happy. Love it. Love it. So look, you, you got a lot of things going on. You're doing amazing things in your life, but you know, you, you're have to juggle and balance a lot of different things. Give us a life hack that you're currently using right now for productivity. I would say that our favorite hack right now is our synchronized Google calendar, our, our meaning my husband That's what and I'm I, talking about, synchronized right? Google calendars and synchronized grocery lists, because I will tell yep. you, there is nothing more infuriating than my husband going to the grocery store by himself without letting me know. And then, you know, picking up everything, but the one thing that I really need, and then me having to go <laughs> do it too. So we have, you know, synchronized grocery lists on a, on an app on our iPhones. And every time that there's something that I need, I put it on there. And every time there's something he needs, he puts it on there. So that means that we're not running to CVS twice because we, you know, went once to get toothpaste and the next time to get toilet paper at all. Mm, that, that's gotcha. key for us right now. Gotcha. And I'm definitely down with the synchronized Gmail <laughs> or Google calendar. Me and my wife use it and it is a game changer. Yes. Tell me. Okay. What's something that you are proud of that nobody else knows about? Huh? Well, <laughs> that's a little bit of a tricky question. Cause I think if nobody else knows about it, there's probably a reason <laughs> why nobody else knows about it. But, that's why um, you're on docs outside the box. We ask hard questions here. Yes. Um, <laughs> I guess the one thing that I am proud of recently in terms of um, things that I've accomplished is really I've become better about setting boundaries. And I think that as I've gotten mm, busier, that's a good one. That's I've a gotten good one. a lot more comfortable saying no. And I've gotten a lot more comfortable just removing myself from situations that I feel like are not helping me. Um, and so that's I, I'm proud of myself for being able to take that step. It took a long time to get to that point. But I, I do know how to say no now, which is good. Ooh. No is a one word sentence, <laughs> you know, but that's excellent. Cause you know, there's a lot of people on this sh who listen to this show or a lot of people in general, particularly physicians, we're used to being type A and we have FOMO, right? Fear of missing mm -hmm. out syndrome. Say yes to everything. You can't get nothing done because you're just stretched doing a multiple things and you should have just said no the first time, you know? So yes. wait a 
Uh, so knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you have given yourself as a pre-med? I guess, you know, I wrote an article about this once about how I would have told myself to take myself less seriously. And I think that that really holds true. I think we are so groomed to project this persona as a physician. Um, and I think that that's great. I think it's important and plays critical roles in certain interactions. But outside of the hospital, I really just wish I would have taken myself a little bit less seriously when I was younger. Mm. <laughs> so that's a really that's good point. Actually, to do. nobody has ever answered that way. So that, I love that answer. So I want you to finish this sentence. I'm not just a doc. I'm a Oh, I love that you do this. I just remember that you do this. And I think it's such a great uh, great thing because it, it goes along with everything that I believe in terms of I'm not just a doctor, right? I am also a mother. I am a physician. Yes, but I am also a, you know, a wife, a friend, a physician or a speaker. I am a writer. There are so many other hats that we wear. And I think it's important for all of us to ask ourselves, why are we not just physicians? What else are we? And go with those things. So I really love that sentence. <laughs> love it. Very honest and um, very poignant. So, Dr. Mehta, I just want to take a quick moment just to acknowledge you. Um, I think what you're doing is amazing. You come off as very down to earth. Your writing is very heartfelt. It's very inspirational. And, you know, you're a physician. You're a mom. You're a wife. You're a writer slash speaker. I mean, you do so many different things. But the one thing that um, I find very um, the biggest thing that underscores you is that you're very down to earth and you care about people. And I really appreciate that. I think the guests or excuse me, I guess the, I think the listeners on this show are going to get a lot from you. I hope you never change. I hope and I can't wait to see, you know, your arc as you continue to explode on the uh, media outlets. <laughs> I, feel I know you don't think about so. Your arc. No, I, <laughs> I think that what you're doing is so great. I think it's so good for us to get these stories out there because I think, you know, everyone needs to hear it so that they can get out of their comfort zone, too. And that's a wrap. Episode 40 is over. I can't believe it. We've got 40 episodes that we are done with. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. I can't wait for the next 40 episodes. I really think that you guys are going to really enjoy what I have in store for you for the next couple of episodes. And as always, if you find a lot of value from this episode or from these episodes in general, hey, go ahead and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts and also share this with anybody else who you think will enjoy this podcast. Links to do that are definitely in the show notes. Just go to www.docsotb.com and I make it really easy for you all to share notes. So look, I'm going to catch you guys on the next episode. But before I jet, remember one thing, we only have one life. Let's make it count and live outside the box. Peace.